Hello, friends. We welcome you to episode four of Syracuse Sports. My name is Brent Axe. So great to have you on board here, my friends. We have got a great show lined up for you today. Mark Packer is going to join us today from the ACC Network. You know Mark from ACCPM on the ACC Network, uh, from his various media work surrounding the ACC. Mark is fantastic with college realignment and the ACC's rolling it just all up in the air. We talked to Mark about that. I think you'll enjoy his insight, not only on that, but where Syracuse fits in that mix currently. And guys, this is Syracuse's 10th year in the ACC. So what's their role in this league a decade later? We talked to Mark about that. We scrolled down memory lane a little bit with Mark. Of course, his father is Billy Packer, who unfortunately passed away recently, but so many great warm memories to share, especially on the college basketball front there with Mark Packer. And one more thing. We're going to take a look at why the Syracuse Mets stink and why it doesn't matter on the field. But I thought we could start today with just some good, meaty football. Let's just get some football training camp observations out of the way. So I've been over at uh, Syracuse football training camp the past couple of days. These, These two recent practices were the last two that the media could observe, right? So uh, full disclosure, I have not been at as many practices as, say, my colleague Emily Liker. She's been at all of them, and some other people have been. But I've been to a few, and I've been talking to players all through camp. And so what I wanted to do, as we're about to shift into game week here and Colgate is knocking on the door, is just kind of give you my observations, not only from the past couple of days, but just camp overall, some things that have been on my mind having seen it in person, having talked to people, of course, reading Emily's great stuff and people that have been covering the team. Let's throw some training camp observations out there. And one thing I got to start with here is I think that second wide receiver is set. We all know who the best wide receiver on this team is. It's Aronde Gatson, whether he's a wide receiver, whether he's a tight end, no matter where you want to line him up on the field, that's the guy that stands out. But Dino Babers has been pretty adamant that he wants a second receiver. Now, this has been a change in the past. Dino has been somebody that has said that it doesn't matter who the number two is. Sometimes it doesn't even matter who the number one receiver was as long as the ball went where it needed to go. And I think those are things you say when you don't have true ones and twos, right? There's always a way you could kind of cover this stuff up. But with a true number one, that's going to draw a lot of attention from opposing defenses. Who takes advantage of that? And I think it is clear that it's Damian Alford. I asked Garrett Schrader that at practice the other day. He said it's Damian Alford. Uh, I think Dino Babers, while he doesn't like to single out players, would agree that it's Damian Alford. He had a lot of great things to say about him when I asked him about that the other day at a media session. I'll say this, though, guys. Isaiah Jones is right on his heels. Remember, he got hurt last year. He was really impressive. That's a guy that has gotten a lot of praise from his fellow receivers, from Babers from Schrader, but you know, Schrader flat out said it's Alford from the practices I've been at. Alford is catching everything. He's consistent. We talked to him the other day. He said he feels he's been as consistent catching the ball as it's been in his time here at Syracuse. I would agree with that. And I think he could benefit the most from the added attention that Ronde Gatson is going to get. This season, it's not to say that Jones can't do it. It's not to say, you know, who else is really popped to me, guys, is uh, Amore Hatcher. I think is somebody that can go out there and make some plays. I think that Dan Villari 
could be a real weapon here. And that's something that I want to get into here because you guys know how I feel about throwing to the tight end. Because Gatson has kind of thrown a monkey wrench in this whole equation in that is he a wide receiver? Is he a tight end? What is he? That's and that's an advantage for Syracuse. Don't get me wrong. That is a huge advantage for Syracuse. <laughs> Maybe you don't know where this guy's going to line up, but I love that Jason Beck has gotten the tight end involved in the passing game, whether that's Gatson or not. And look, if they can gadget Dan Villari and make him a part of this offense, I think that's an advantage. But man, the guy that really pops literally is one of those off the bus guys is freshman tight end David Clement. 6'6", stands out on the field. The sooner they can get him comfortable, I I think they're going to use it one way or the other. I don't know how you have a talent sitting there on that field and you don't incorporate him into your offense. But look, he's a freshman. He's getting used to things. You don't want to throw him into the deep end of the pool unless he's ready to swim. I think you're going to see him on the field, but he is somebody that has really stood out. So I think there's a clear one and two with a few other guys that are right there nipping at the heels. Now, here's my question, speaking of, of number two. Number two, if, uh, you know, uh, what was it, the, the Austin Powers movies? Number two, is the second quarterback set? Now, Carlos Del Rio Wilson is the backup quarterback on this team. I don't think there's any question about that. From the practices I've been at, I can see why he's number two. Garrett Schrader is the clear starter. And Uncle Brent will always remind you of this stat. The starting quarterback has not finished a season at Syracuse since 2012. Ryan Nassib was the last guy that went start to finish and was not hurt or replaced by coach's decision, right? A quarterback change made due to performance or injury. 2012, a decade since that happened. Carlos Del Rio Wilson, I think, can carry the offense. I like what Carlos Del Rio Wilson brings to the table, but I've just seen enough inconsistency at the practices I've been at. Maybe he had a couple of bad days, struggling on certain throws. Here's the thing, though. He'll miss a a fade route to the corner of the end zone, and then he'll nail one, right? He made one of the best throws at practice. I'm talking to you here on Wednesday, the 23rd. At this morning's practice, he made a terrific throw. So it's in between. I don't want to judge a guy too much on practice, but I feel like there's opportunity there. I mean, they brought in Braden Davis, 6'5", 220, big dude, good arm, but he's getting acclimated here. He is nowhere near in terms of being ready to get on the field, in terms of knowing the offense, being comfortable with Jason Beck as much as Carlos Del Rio Wilson is. But look, I just got to bring that up. I hope that Garrett Schrader is healthy. I hope, and by all accounts, from what I've seen from Schrader, he looks fine. He made, speaking of Damian Alford, he made a terrific throw to him in a goal line work, nice fade route in the corner. They have been careful with Schrader, even up until, what are we, you know, 10 days away from uh, Syracuse kicking off against Colgate. There are certain drills that they hold Garrett Schrader out of, right? He's on a pitch count still. But he's been everything that matters. He played the entire scrimmage in the 11-on-11s, in the goal line work. Let me put it to you this way. In the drills that matter, Garrett Schrader's been out there, and he looks fine. So I think he's going to be fine. But if he goes down, how ready is Carlos Del Rio Wilson to carry the load? Uh, Kickers are people, too. And, look, this is one of those storylines that's sitting there. Emily Liker and I talked about it in a previous episode of Syracuse sports. And I think it's one of those storylines. It's just kind of laying in the weeds here 
You have got to replace Andre Schmidt, a Lou Groza award-winning kicker and one of the best kickers in Syracuse history. And the punting situation at Syracuse wasn't the best last year. Now, Dino Babers has been just effusive in his praise of Jack Stonehouse. Stonehouse fits the mold. He's a big dude. From the kicks that I've seen, we actually, in the, the open practices that we've been to, and, and access has been terrific, by the way. Shout out to Syracuse. They're not doing that 15 minutes of stretching nonsense and then kick you out. We have got to see the most amount of practice time since I've been covering this football team, no matter who the coach has been. A solid hour of, of drills that matter and stuff that you can actually make good media observations on, right? But the kickers are just not something we've seen a ton of, but what we have seen, I have no issues with Stonehouse. Brady Denneberg, I don't know. I've got to see it. And man, you want to talk about what LaQuint Allen has to do to replace Sean Tucker at the running back position? I think Denneberg's under, if not as much, certainly a lot of pressure to do the same thing with Andre Schmidt. So everything I've heard, they love the kickers. A couple of coaches I've talked to say they're they're going to be fine. That's camp. You don't get preseason games in college football. I just I want to see it with the live bullets flying. I want to see what those guys do stepping into big roles. Special teams matters. Field position is huge. I think they'll be fine, but it's just something I got to see. And it I don't know if I'm seeing it enough at training camp, right? to make a determination on that. But everybody, and I think it's genuine too. I mean, coaches are going to say certain things about their players. Everybody's in all American and training camp, but I have gotten that vibe from people that give it to me straight that those guys are going to be fine. Uh, the best player on defense, Marlo Wax comes to mind. Caleb Okachuku comes to mind, right? But I had an intriguing conversation with a member of the Syracuse football staff who was adamant to me that Cinco is the guy we should be keeping an eye on. Elijah Clark said he's one of the fastest players on defense. Step right in. Remember the transfer from Rutgers. I'll pull up his uh, stats while we're yapping about him here. But he told me that's the guy. It's actually somebody who had heard one of our previous podcasts when we ranked the five most irreplaceable players on the Syracuse football staff. And Clark was one of those people. He was pretty adamant, fits that description, and somebody that should be on that list. Isaiah Johnson is an important part of this defense. I wouldn't put him in the best category, and I think there's a couple of players that Justin Barron has popped. He's actually got a fun bet going with Garrett Schrader, by the way, about how many interceptions that Barron has gotten on Schrader. I believe he's up to three, which is going to cost Garrett Schrader some money. They were joking about that at a player session the other day. So who's the best player on this defense? This member of the Syracuse football coaching staff was adamant to me that it's going to be Elijah Clark. And that's a secondary in transition, obviously with Chestnut gone. You're losing players to Ohio State in the transfer portal. Syracuse has put Ify Mellon Fonwu and Andre Sisco and consistent players from that secondary into the National Football League as of late. That has become an intriguing position to watch. And Clark... By the time it's all said and done, could fit that description as the best player on defense. Those are a few camp observations for you. We're getting closer. We're right there. Syracuse football 
We're knocking on the door. Camp is pretty much over, friends, and it's time to get into game week and really get into the meat and potatoes of college football. Cannot wait. Speaking of which, let's bring in Mark Packer from the ACC Network and talk about all that. Well, Mark, I know it's been a nice, quiet summer for you. Nothing crazy going on, right? ACC PM. I think you guys are just like pulling teeth to get subjects to talk about this summer, right? You know, Brent, I swear to God, I've been doing this a long time, whether it be radio or now the stuff on ACC Network. And and we would always get like to the end of March Madness, the Final Four, and people would go, man, what are you going to talk about? And, you know, the rest of April and May and June and July. And I always laughed. And I'm like, you know what? I never worry about it because I promise you, Somebody or something is going to do something so outrageous or so stupid that you will sit there and go, thank you very much. It's on a silver platter. And so it's been weird the last couple of years, almost every single year. It's something completely different that grabs our attention and takes us down the road. And it's true whether you're covering college sports or you're doing the pro scene or the combination of all the above. There is always something to talk about. And. Given where we are in society today, I mean, it almost makes it easier to know that there's never going to be any downtime. It's incredible to think about. And the ACC is just right in the heart of these conversations. And here's my hot take about all this stuff, Mark. The ACC is kind of fine, right? Like those like predicting the the demise of the league and they've got to do this and they've got to do that. I'm not going to sit here and say that Jim Phillips gets a perfect rating here. It could be a lot worse based on what we've seen around the league. What what kind of grade would you give the ACC and just how they've handled this, how they've ridden out this this latest realignment storm we're in? Well, the grade would be incomplete because it is still incomplete. Now, if you and I were talking about the Pac-12, could we give it a grade? Yeah, well, we could. Uh, it would be F as in failure because it's just disintegrated in front of our very eyes here in the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny, Brent. I, I, I get hit with that question all the time. And I'm not saying this because I'm employed by ESPN covering the ACC. I'm just going to shoot you straight with all this stuff. The league is actually in a really good spot. And I know a lot of people don't want to hear it because it's not a hot take. Uh, Is it the SEC or the Big Ten as far as monetary gains? No, nobody is. But it's in a great spot at three. Now, we would be having a completely different conversation. If all of a sudden you can't make ends meet and nobody's making any money and you don't have a TV deal and, hey, we can't get a scheduling partner, that is a totally different animal. Quite frankly, the ACC's never made more money. And I know a lot of people don't want to hear that because they're always comparing it to, what did you see what the SEC made in the Big Ten and the ACC can't renegotiate a a TV deal with ESPN because they're in locked and loaded for 20, 30 seconds. All that may be true as far as how that goes, but there's going to be some things that are always going to change stuff. But the league is actually in a pretty good spot. Now, uh, could it be better? Uh, Sure it could. I mean, it it would be instantly better if Notre Dame decided to join in football. It it would solve a lot of ills. And there's a lot of people that say, well, the league missed an opportunity in 2020 during COVID when Notre Dame really was in no man's land. Well, that's easy to say today. I'm sure there were people saying it when it was going on that this was the opportunity to basically put Notre Dame over a barrel, but John Swafford didn't do that. Sometimes good partners don't do stuff like that to other partners. Uh, But there is the word partnership, and you do wonder at some point in time, will Notre Dame ever live up and say, guess what? 
you know what? We can help you guys out by joining. Quite frankly, I think Notre Dame's in a great position uh, with the expansion of the college football playoff to 12. Uh, it's actually easier for them to get in the college football playoff than it is currently with the number at four. So it's what makes the world go round. But the big picture, as far as the ACC goes, it's in a good spot. Could it be better? Sure. Some things would have to happen. But let's not make a light of the fact that, hey, nobody's going broke here. Um, the league has never been better financially. So we'll see where it goes. Again, it's college sports. Uh, the greed factor is at an all-time high with the chase for money. And I always make a comment, too, Brent, that, you know, when it comes to, hey, can you catch the SEC or the Big Ten financially? Maybe you can't, you know, and, and if you can't, so what? Uh, quite frankly, the ACC has done pretty well when it comes to winning national championships. It, I use this term all the time that if I said to you, name the only Power Five conference that's won a national championship since 2015 in football, men's basketball, women's basketball, and baseball, the answer is not the SEC and all their money. The answer is not the Big Ten and all their money. It's not the Pac-12, wherever they went, or the Big 12 and whatever their combination is. The answer is the Atlantic Coast Conference. So you could still have success. Maybe your margin for error has gotten tighter because other schools can make mistakes because of the money. That may all be true, but quite frankly, the league is still in a pretty good spot. Well, Mark, we saw it here last year when the Syracuse men's soccer team won the national championship for two weeks. This entire town was a soccer fan, and it was into it as just as much as if the men's basketball team made the final four or the football team made a run in the playoffs. So it goes to show you that the you know the so-called Olympic sports can get people excited, which which brings me to my next thing about this. I know that football is the basis of all these conversations. But where are you on Cal and Stanford considering top to bottom? Those are two of the best athletic departments in the country, Stanford in particular. Uh, not only um, from an Olympic standpoint, they're spectacular. They're not great. They're spectacular. Um, but, you know, this is a business. Uh, I've talked to a number of athletic directors in the league that go from a financial standpoint, how does this work? Um, everybody's under the gun already just from a scheduling standpoint of fiscal responsibility. It's difficult. I, I can imagine, again, I'm not trying to speak for anybody here, but I can imagine that the presidents of Atlantic Coast Conference institutions love the idea of having a relationship with uh, academic schools like Stanford and Cal. All of that makes a ton of sense and is consistent with a number of the institutions already in the league. But if you're running an athletic department, uh, you've got to make ends meet. And I don't know how that works. Again, I, I, my, my goal every day is to get down 16 steps to do a, a TV show that simulcasted on radio. So, I, you know, my, my world's completely different than somebody that's running a multi-million dollar budget in an athletic department. I, I don't know how Cal and Stanford make it make sense from a athletic standpoint. But again, there's going to be a lot smarter people making that decision. And uh, again, people will speculate down the road, Brent, about, well, you know, if in case one of these days somebody in the ACC decides to leave, you got to have strength in numbers. Well, that I get that to a degree, but they also have to bring something to the table. And, and if you're great in water polo and volleyball and soccer and all that stuff, that's great. But quite frankly, what's making it all make sense now is football and basically basketball. And does Stanford and Cal, do they bring anything to the table today uh, that, that uh, to me, enhances the conference? Uh, from a football perspective, I'd say the answer is no. 
but again, I, I'm not making that decision. So uh, it's the it's the it's the, it's the crazy game that we all have with a, with expansion, right? We saw it with Oklahoma and Texas. Does Oklahoma and Texas add something to the SEC in football? Without question. Does uh, USC and UCLA add something to the Big Ten in football? Without question. Now, uh, can they make that work financially? Probably so, given the fact that the way their TV deals are structured and what they bring to the table. So when you start talking about Stanford and Cal, uh, from a football perspective, uh, I would tell you on a scale of 1 to 10, it, it would be a very, very low number. But we'll see how this thing plays out. By the way, for those of you watching on YouTube, when Mark says walk 16 steps to a studio, he's not kidding. That studio for ACC PM that you watch on the ACC network is in his basement. The dogs are there. It's it's one of my favorite things. And I, I've been fortunate to be on your show a few times. And I always I am so jealous that you can just walk down in that basement and have a world class TV studio. Well, it's this is the God honest truth. I, and I can speak on this as an, an expert. I have the greatest television set up in the history of mankind because ESPN spent a small fortune before COVID, before we had a whole COVID deal. And they ended up taking what I was doing in my old Sirius XM radio show, which was my man cave downstairs. And they turned that into a world-class television studio with four cameras and 30 lights and all the equipment. I thought they were crazy when they came up with that idea, but um, it is the easiest commute in, in sports television. There's no question. Mark, with the backdrop of everything we're talking about here, realignment and, and the craziness uh, out there, Syracuse is about to enter its 10th anniversary season in the ACC. What is Syracuse's role in this league? Um, that's a good question. There's a lot of people that were still maybe trying to answer that question uh, big picture. You know, you got to understand where the world was when John Swafford was adding and, and and going through that whole process. And it's kind of like the grant of rights. People were ripping out the shreds, but they don't understand that without it, the league would have been picked apart 10 years ago. Uh, Syracuse was brought in, number one, from an academic standpoint, it made a lot of sense with the other institutions. It had a great basketball tradition, which obviously has been the bread and butter for this league from day one. Uh, the market of New York, which was the spin back then in those days, that, hey, you're bringing the New York television market to the table. I'm not sure if that's necessarily true, but that was what was perceived. Uh, so Syracuse has its niche. Uh, I would say, to be completely honest, I don't think Syracuse men's basketball has lived up to what the standard was when they joined the league. Uh, no knock on Jim Beheim, and I know there'll be people that are screaming, well, they've been in the Final Four. Hey, I get all that. But I think if you're being honest with yourself regarding Syracuse men's basketball, it has not been as consistently good as what anybody anticipated when they joined the league. And, and when Syracuse joined, I mean, we had the North Carolinas, the Dukes, the Virginias, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think a lot of folks who followed college, college hoops, self-included, thought, man, Syracuse basketball. And I know year one was really good. But quite frankly, Syracuse has been average at best uh, for the most part when you take a snapshot. So basketball has not been as good as anticipated. Football has had spikes uh, but again, for, for the ACC where it is now, football needs to get better. And so, again, a lot of pressure will be on Dino, be a lot of pressure on a lot of folks, whether you're Miami, Florida State, Virginia Tech, or somebody else to kind of get it back going again. But I think big picture, uh, the non-revenue sports per se have been really good. Uh, you just mentioned the men's team winning the national championship in soccer. Again, we talk about uh, lacrosse and what a staple Syracuse has been from a, from a traditional standpoint 
and how good they've been since joining the league. But I, I think when they joined the conference, though, Brent, everybody assumed that Syracuse would be in that same conversation from a men's basketball perspective. And quite frankly, it just hasn't lived up to its hype yet. Yeah, basketball is not finished higher than sixth, I believe, uh, in, in the ACC since that, that first successful year that yeah. you brought up. Switching gears over to football, Mark, uh, through all your conversations uh, through the offseason, talking to Dino, talking to people that have been at practice, you know, the road shows, everything. What's the most intriguing thing or two that you've heard about Syracuse football leading up to the season? Well, I, I think it starts a quarterback with everybody in the country, uh, whether it be the ACC or outside our footprint. And uh, this league has got a really, really terrific collection of quarterbacks. And I think to me, a guy like Garrett Schrader is the guy that kind of flies underneath the radar. I mean, everybody will be talking about Drake May and Jordan Travis and rightfully so. I uh, just got done coming back from Duke. Riley Leonard's going to be a really good player. Kate Klubnick at Clemson looks like he's going to have the potential. Talk about Phil, Phil Dracovic and Brendan Armstrong, list goes on and on. You know, people forget about Garrett Schrader. And I thought last year was kind of a breakthrough year for him uh, to be a more complete player. And I say this all the time. Uh, for folks that just watch TV and don't really get a chance to get eyeball to eyeball, folks, when you stand beside him, that is a grown man now. That is a NFL caliber, prototypical uh, quarterback body. Uh, the fact that he can run, I thought his passing last year uh, certainly took an improvement from that perspective. To me, Garrett Schrader staying healthy and being healthy will be a key for Syracuse's success moving forward. And he will be a story. I, I thought he was a story last year. When, when Cuse got off to the great, you know, great start, people around the country were like, man, what's up with Syracuse? Have you seen this quarterback play? And it was almost like, man, we've never heard of him before. And granted, the league had great quarterbacks last year. But I think he gets lost in the shuffle because he can flat out play. Uh, I think the other question mark will be, from my perspective with Syracuse, will be on the other side of the ball, and that's the secondary. And, you know, last year, Syracuse had some really, really talented guys. And then you go through the transfer portal, what was lost and so forth. Uh, being able to reestablish that in the backside of that defense this upcoming year will be really, really important. With you got so many good quarterbacks in this league, if you have a leaky secondary, uh, you're asking for trouble because there's some dudes that can flat out spin it in school league. So to me, it starts with the quarterback and, again, on the defensive side, Kind of curious to see what Syracuse does to, to kind of reinforce what they lost in the secondary. On that note, Mark, and I'm going to give it to you here in case you don't have Syracuse's schedule right in front of you, but this this is their ACC slate. Clemson, North Carolina, Florida State, Virginia Tech, Boston College, Pittsburgh, Georgia Tech, Wake Forest. So taking that in, give me the three or four best players that Syracuse is going to face in the ACC. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I was talking about this the other day on the show, and everybody, again, when we start talking about the entire league, everybody kind of circled September 23rd for Clemson and Florida State, and and rightfully so. I mean, unless you're an idiot, you'd say, well, that game doesn't even matter. Well, that game <laughs> seems like it's going to be really important regardless. But I pointed out on the tube the other day that, you know, every that's an easy one to circle. I look at other games that are around that one, and to me – Clemson at Syracuse the following week is a danger game if you're Clemson. And the reason I say it is, regardless of what happens in Death Valley when Florida State shows up, if you win, great, throw a parade, all that good stuff. If you lose, woe is me, and everybody will be, you know, wandering around with their head between their tails. So my point is, 
The next week, Clemson's got to go to Syracuse. And for anybody that has followed that series, Syracuse has been a bigger thorn in Clemson's side than probably anybody else in the league. And it's not even a matter of wins and losses. It's the way the games have been played. Uh, Syracuse got them up in the dome a couple years back. They've had the Tigers on the ropes. I was at the game last year that, quite frankly, Clemson was in no man's land, and Syracuse had them right where they wanted. Syracuse, for whatever reason, has matched up well with Clemson. And I just think with all the emotion that's going to be sitting there on September 23rd with Clemson and Florida State, that the Tigers better be ready to play. Because I know Dino, and I know that crowd's going to be great, and everybody's wanting to get off to a good start. And I just know that Syracuse traditionally has always played the Tigers tough. So to me, that's a game that jumps off the page that nobody in the country is talking about as a, oh, that's a W, mark it up, it's a piece of cake. Wrong. you got to look a little bit deeper. So that game jumped out off on me. I mentioned Drake May in North Carolina, all these great quarterbacks in the league. That's why the secondary is really important from my perspective of Syracuse. they got to get that buttoned up. Uh, the game with Pitt, I think Pitt is flying underneath the radar again. Phil Jerkovic, another guy that was terrific quarterback, goes from B.C., goes back home to Pittsburgh. I think Pat Narduzzi's guys are going to be pretty good, pretty talented. They always have been. They never seem to get any love from a national perspective. So there's some games there that, that grab my attention right from the get-go with Syracuse. But for the most part, it, it, it's still a manageable conference schedule, despite those headaches that I just mentioned there. And to me, that's where Dino and Syracuse have to steal some, right? you got to be able to get three or four out of that group and then take care of your non-conference business. If you do that, you're heading back to a bowl. And, you know, if you have a perfect year in which the ball bounces right, you don't get beat up, uh, who knows what it can do, given the fact especially we don't have divisions this year. Now it's just a matter of, hey, who are the top two teams? They're the ones that are going to go to Charlotte for the ACC title. Which, by the way, thank God for that. I, I've been waiting for that. I think the division thing kind of ran its course. It's it's ironic that I don't want to say anything good came out of the pandemic, but it that year showed us what the league can be if they don't have the divisions and that they didn't need them. And I can't wait to see a, a true ACC championship game in a way this year. Now, you brought well, up Clemson. Say, one other thing, too, Brent. With sure, that. Yeah. Not only is am I agreeing with you from that perspective, but also – uh, Jim Phillips in the league coming up with a new scheduling system, I, I think made a ton of sense because now as a fan, whether you're at Syracuse or you're down at Miami or anywhere in between, you're going to get a chance to see everybody in the league over a span of four years. I mean, it, it was ridiculous that we'd have like Florida state hadn't been to Virginia tech in a, in 12 years. I mean, that, that should never happen in a conference. And I know expansions changed everything from that perspective, but the scheduling change in the ACC is a really good one for not only the players who have to play and the coaches, but I think from a fan's perspective too, everybody wants to be able to see everybody come to their house over a span of four years and play. So I like the fact that we've gotten rid of divisions. I like the new scheduling system too. No doubt about it. For Syracuse, I think it was they had not seen or wouldn't play Miami for like 12 years. And you, right. you just can't do that when you, that you've got – never happen. Right. That I mean, exactly. whether, yeah, whether it be Syracuse, Georgia Tech, fill in the blank, uh, I don't care what league you're in, you should never be in a position where a man – We've never had a chance to see him play. They've never been to our house, or we've never gone to play. I mean, that's almost absolutely ridiculous in some respects. Now, you brought up some of the stars and some of the the prime teams in the league here. Uh, Whether they play Syracuse or not, I'm curious, what's an underrated storyline or two coming into the 2023 ACC football season? Uh, To me, um, 
you know, I know Clemson, Florida State seem to be on paper on another stratosphere. It doesn't mean they can't lose. I just mentioned the Clemson-Syracuse game. I, I don't remember a year uh, going into a football season in the ACC, Brent, where I have no earthly idea how three through eight are going to play mm-hmm. out. Um, and again, there's always a conversation, maybe three, four, or five. But three through eight, I think there's five or six teams that could literally finish behind Clemson and Florida State assuming that we're going to assume that those are the two best teams. Um, and again, I, I have no earthly idea. I, I was in Boston college a week and a half ago for our camp tours. And I mean, here's a team that won three games last year and nobody's talking about them and I'm watching their practice and they were, you know, they had a year last year where they were all beat up and banged up and I mean, their offensive line couldn't block me, but they're all back now. And, you know, you know, Jeff Halfley's a really good football coach and, their defense will figure it out. So, I mean, that could be a team that could win six, seven, eight games. Virginia Tech won three games last year. I expect them to be 100% better than they were a year ago. Um, nobody ever talks about Wake Forest. All they do is score 35 points a game and win a bunch of games. I think a team like Louisville, uh, who everybody's sleeping on, does not see Clemson, does not see Florida State, does not see North Carolina. Wow. Hey, you give me a, You give me a schedule – where a team doesn't have to see those three teams in a, in a conference that all you got to do is be first or second to get to a title game, that's a humongous advantage. Uh, so I think there's all kinds of cool storylines outside of what we perceive to be the two best teams in Clemson and Florida State. Hey, Mark, I want to close on this note. Um, I know that you uh, lost your father uh, recently, and uh, our condolences, of course, go out to you and your family. and. I, I feel like if in life you can like own a corner on something like you have really accomplished something. And if I say college basketball broadcaster, like if you don't think of Billy Packer immediately, like I don't know what to tell you. So in thinking about those memories and you brought up Syracuse basketball and the standard they need to bring back to this league. Are there any particular Syracuse basketball memories with your dad that popped to mind? I mean, he called you know, the 87 final four, the 96 final four, the old three final four, like he is right there. All those big games he called here in the dome, but is there any in particular that, that stand out to you that maybe you guys talked about or just uh, in general? Well, I don't know if you'll love this one, but um, and I wish Billy was here to tell him because he, he could give you 10 days worth of unbelievable big East Syracuse stories uh, when, when everything was in its heyday. And I, again, I know Syracuse is an ACC school, but, but my it still resonates with me in those awesome Big East games. And, again, no growing doubt. up as an ACC guy, uh, ACC hoops and Big East basketball, and you get in the 80s and the 90s, man, it, it just, you know, for folks that, that weren't around to see it and live it, they just don't get it when you try to tell those stories. And, you know, I, I think of just the incredible coaches and the environments uh, that Jim Beheim when he had that thing rolling at Syracuse in the Big East, uh, you know, you had the John Thompson at Georgetown and Karnaseka. And, I mean, I just go through the whole list. Raleigh doing his thing at Villanova. And, I mean, it was, those were just special moments. And I, I remember Billy doing a bunch of those games, obviously. And um, the intensity level of like when Georgetown and John Thompson and Patrick Ewing showed up at the Dome, right? I mean, th- those were just like – Man, we've got 35,000 in here, but if the place had 70,000 seats, we'd have 70,000 people in here. And just the whole intensity and 
I remember Billy telling me a story one time about somebody throwing an orange hitting the back, hitting the back, uh, uh, the the, uh, the, the backboard, yeah, backboard, and um, yeah, and he, Thompson he said, was like, "Get off the court!" Yeah, get his right, players away. Was, yeah, right. I mean, the, and, you know, we kind of lost. I mean, there's still intense moments in college sports and all that stuff that I'm not sure people realize today. If you're, if you're a 20 year old kid today. And, and you're watching college hoops or college football, hoops in particular, uh, you really, unfortunately, didn't get a chance to experience how great basketball was in the 80s and the 90s. Because here's the other thing. We weren't talking about one and dones. We weren't talking about transfer portals. I mean, kids stayed. Not only did you have great coaches and great environments, but you also knew the other guys' lineup, right? Now, if you're a Syracuse fan, you knew exactly – what Villanova and Syracuse and St. John's and Georgetown and Kennett and UConn, they, you knew what they were bringing back next year. That kid who was a sophomore, you were all over his case, man. You knew all about him coming back as a junior. So it was just a different era. Uh, the quality of basketball, in my opinion, dwarfs what we have today. And I know this sounds like the old man get off my front yard thing, <laughs> but folks just didn't understand. You go back and look at the lineups of those oh. teams, whether it be at Syracuse or anywhere else. Incredible. In the 80s, in the 90s, and you realize, wow, that's a pretty good team. Yeah, not only were they a pretty good team, they were well coached and they were grown men who had played for two or three years together, unlike today, where, hey, you may catch fire with some kid who, after his freshman year, goes, hey, boys, catch you later. I'm off to the NBA, or hey, screw this. I'm going over to school X, Y, and Z. So it's just a different era. Uh, but, you know, I think if you're a Syracuse fan, uh, you look back with great memories of the 80s and the 90s about what Big East basketball was all about, the intensity levels, the rivalries, the coaches. Uh, they were great characters, but, man, the players were unbelievable. Pearl Washington, I mean, I, I could go on and on and on, even as a kid watching it, and whether Billy was calling the game or not. But um, I, I just remember getting growing up in the ACC, the rivalry between those two leagues who had – Hall of Fame, all-time great coaches and players and the environments. Uh, that was a really, really special time. And I'm, I'm not sure that we'll ever see it again, given the really the lay of the land right now in college athletics. We'll just never be able to see great teams, quite frankly, that are made up of juniors and seniors on a men's basketball uh, lineup anymore. It's just, it's a shame. It's what we got now. But uh, if you're a Syracuse fan and you're old enough, you know what I'm talking about. Folks, you can see Mark Packer on the ACC PM show, 4 p.m. on the ACC network. You guys are doing great work. You're going to be doing some road shows, going to campuses before the big games this fall. And, uh, you know, I love the work you do and appreciate you. And I always love coming on with you. Love that you got the chance to come out with me today. We'll definitely do it again sometime, Mark. But uh, really appreciate your time today, my friend. Brent, my pleasure. We can do it anytime you want. And again, thank goodness we're getting to the season. Let's kick this thing off and see where it goes. Oh, but wait, there's just one more thing. The Syracuse Mets are once again, one of the worst teams in AAA baseball. We'll be denied the beauty of playoff baseball once again here in central New York and all too common things. The Mets and the Chiefs before them have only made the postseason once since 2000. And even then, they got swept in 2014. The last time that a Syracuse professional baseball team won a playoff game at all was 1994. I was a sophomore in high school. 
And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter. In case you haven't noticed, a complete transformation has taken place over at NBT Bank Stadium. It's a clean, comfortable place to watch a ball game. The food options are worlds better than what they used to be. Even the pickiest of eaters, you know how picky kids can be, will find something to munch on. The adult beverage options are plentiful. I suggest enjoying one on the Salt City deck in left field during a beautiful summer night. There are consistent and creative promotions at every home game, and general manager Jason Smorrell sure cranks up the energy and is the director of fun at all of them. Now, the product on the field in terms of wins and losses has been meh, but the faster pace of baseball due to the pitch clock and other rule changes make that more tolerable. The games move faster. Now, some fear that branding the team after the New York Mets would be a deterrent for those that aren't Mets fans. At least the Chiefs were a Syracuse thing, no matter the major league affiliate. But talent is talent. And seeing top prospects like Brett Beatty and Francesco Alvarez come through Syracuse, not to mention some terrific visiting players like Ellie De La Cruz and a recent rehab visit from Chris Sale, hey, I'm a Red Sox fan, has made that Mets affiliation worth it alone. Now, I know the New York Mets aren't what they should be at the big league level, considering the massive payroll that owner Steve Cohen funded, but at least you're not the Yankees. That noted, it does feel like there's momentum with Cohen as the owner, and that is trickling down here to Syracuse. Win or lose, you're going to have a good time at the old ball game. That's episode four of Syracuse Sports. I want to thank Mark Packer for being our guest. I want to thank Nate Mink, Scott Schild, Lauren Long, and Krista Lemzak for their technical assistance. And I want to thank you for listening and watching. Subscribe on Spotify, YouTube, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a review. It really helps us stand out in the podcast world. And don't forget about our voicemail line, 315-552-1964. We want to hear from you. We've got a mailbag episode coming up soon. That's going to be all you guys. So make sure you take advantage of that voicemail line. We'll talk to you next time.